have other preaching. <laughs> it's just kind of how it worked out here recently. Uh, Pastor Ben has had some health uh, struggles here recently. We appreciate you praying for him. Pastor Chris has been on the road. Pastor Scotty is AWOL. I don't know where he's at. Uh, Pastor Roger's been traveling. So just a uh, perfect storm. So you get stuck with me two weeks in a row. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as uh, Kevin mentioned. And so real quick, just to kind of get it, you know, catch us up where we're at. Paul's writing this letter to one of the churches he planted. It's been a few years since he was there. Uh, and he's heard about some, there's some division, some turmoil in the church. And specifically, over the last few chapters, he's been talking about uh, this issue of can a Christian eat meat that was previously offered to a pagan idol or on a pagan altar. And for us in our modern world, we're like, that's a really weird thing to be, you know, like that that was a common debate or issue. But we have our own things like that, things that people, one side is really uh, convinced they're right and the other side is really convinced the other ones are going to hell and, you know, all that. So we have those kind of things today, basically liberty you know, what you're free to do uh, versus conviction, what, you know, you really feel convicted over. Uh, and so, does your does your knowledge trump someone else's heart? Is the, is the big question he's been dealing with. Here, not too long ago, I was arguing with my wife, or, we, well, we don't argue, we have intense fellowship. We were arguing a little bit, though, and so I, you know, giving her my two cents, and she goes, there you go again with facts. Why can't you just let me be right? And I said, well, that's not how right works. Which I found out is, in fact, not the right answer to what to that question. Uh, and so, it might be important, more important, to put someone's feelings ahead of technicalities. Right? We like to catch people up and, well, you actually said this, and sometimes that's not the best thing. Sometimes someone's heart is more important than winning that particular uh, exchange. So last week, Paul used uh, the nation of Israel as, uh, as an example of how someone can have every blessing, have everything, every privilege, and still mess it up royally, right? uh, as I did with my wife. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 and 12 is where we left off. It said this, now these things happen to them. As an example, right? He, in the previous verses, he talked about how that what God did when they were out in the wilderness, and there was this deal with serpents and all this stuff that went on. And he says all that stuff happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so, basically, we. That's where we left off, that, you know, you are not as strong, smart, or mature as maybe you think you are. Uh, and so if the nation of Israel 
who had every blessing and every benefit, if they could still do poorly and do stupid things, what makes you think that you're immune to that? So that's where we're going to pick up. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll, we'll dig into the rest of the chapter. Well, we thank you this uh, morning for giving us another opportunity to study your word. We know it's a privilege, something we take for granted. Uh, well, we just pray today that uh, our hearts will be open to not just gaining more information about you, but, but to being changed by your word. Well, we know that we've been given so many blessings that we take for granted, uh, and we we mess it up. So we just pray that uh, what we get glean here today, that this would not be just another set of facts that we would put in the back of our mind and forget about. But Lord, that it would be something that uh, changes who we are and how we walk as your children. We pray these things in Jesus. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And as Kevin mentioned, we're actually going to go one verse into chapter 11, only because, you know, in your Bible you have those, those chapter and verse breaks. That's not how the Bible was written. That was done later. Uh, and um, we're thankful that people did that, that put the verses and the chapter breaks in so that we can find things. But that's not necessarily inspired. And sometimes they get the, the chapter break wrong. Like the, the chain of thought, or train of thought, you know, doesn't end. At the end of this chapter, it actually ends the beginning of the next chapter. But anyway, the uh, so 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, people like to quote that and go, God will never give you more than you can handle. I'm like, mm, that's not what it says will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you will be able to endure. You will absolutely get things that are hard, too hard for you to handle, but God gives you an escape. God gives you, well, he says he will provide the way of escape. He's already provided the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible tells us that that is the, the great mystery, that, that Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you've trusted Jesus, He's in you, right? and He can help you deal with whatever temptation, whatever trial you're dealing with. So it's not all about just willpower and positive thinking. It's Christ in me. He actually can live in and through me. Because greater is He who is in you than He, he who is in the world, the Bible tells us. But practically speaking, he says, God will make a way of escape right, when you're tempted. The trick is, he will make a way of escape, but you have to take the way of escape, right? I'm reminded of that, that story that this guy is trying to lose weight, and he, and he prays, Lord, you know, I'm really tempted by donuts, so please, on my way to work this morning, don't let there be any open parking spots in front of the bakery. And then I'll know that, you know, you're with me. But wouldn't you know it, there was an empty spot right in front of the front door on his fifth time around the block. You know, sometimes we, we are looking for any excuse to not flee the temptation, right? It may be that uh, 
change the channel. Right? Maybe, uh, maybe, it's, maybe you need to just get off the computer or put down your phone. And when temptation knocks, call on Jesus. Let him answer. It's amazing uh, what will happen when you just speak this name above all names in times of trial, in times of temptation. It's pretty hard to uh, willfully sin with, you know, Christian radio playing and, and Jesus' name on your lips. We still manage to do it, but uh, that's very often the means of escape is just calling on Him. It could be, though, that you li- you need to, you know, we like, we like to think, well, I'm stronger than that, I have willpower, I don't, I can handle it. Sometimes that's not the case. Right? He says, I'm, I'll provide a means of escape so that you can handle it. In verse 14, he puts it this, this way, he says, Therefore, my beloved, There's something that he said just for that word, my beloved. Paul calls Christians that all the time. And these are people that, remember, this church, they were like arguing about whether Paul uh, was even a real apostle, uh, you know, whether he should listen to someone else over him, whether he deserved to be paid. And all, you know, they said a lot of bad stuff about him. He still calls them beloved. He still loves them even when they're hurting. But still, it says, therefore, my beloved, what? Flee from idolatry from idolatry. I'm reminded, uh, you know, perfect example of this is, you know the story, Joseph in the Old Testament, uh, when he's in Potiphar's house, his Potiphar's wife uh, wants to have sex with him, and he's a young fellow, and, you know, he knows he's tempted. He also knows this is a really bad idea. And he he just nopes his way right out of there. Right? He, he literally runs from her. Actually, ran out of his uh, out of his robe. You know, she had holding on to it, and he had to just uh, get rid of it to get out. But Paul says to flee idolatry, and you'll see similar commands in nearly every book of the Bible. Idolatry comes up over and over and over because it is the sin that we're most we're most prone to. The first two commandments in the Ten Commandments um, are about directing our love toward God and forbid our worship of anything other than God. And because he knew that was the thing we're prone to. And when Israel, when they draw near the promised land, Moses warns them over and over and over about idolatry. And then when they enter into the promised land, guess what? They immediately fall into idolatry. Um... And so, you know, when we hear that word, some of us, we think, oh, yeah, people back then were so dumb, they worshipped statues. Right? They, they worshipped these false gods and statues. That's, we're so much better and smarter than that. But idolatry is uh, anyone or anything, an idol is anyone or anything that you allow to occupy the position intended for God. Right? So, in other words, anyone or anything that is your primary source of comfort in hard times. Or your, uh, it's the first thing you turn to when you need guidance 
It's the thing that you think is responsible for your joy and happiness. Now the list gets a little bigger of what an idol could be. It could be a person. For some of us, and we you won't think of it this way, but some of us, we've made our spouse an idol. Now, I'm not saying you worship your spouse, but you think it's their job to make you happy. Hmm? And that's a, that, that's a job that no human being can actually live up to. They're going to fail at that. The Lord says, I am your source of joy. That you can find your joy in me. And then your spouse can add to it. Um, it could be that um, it's your wealth, right? Your, your worth is based on what your bank statement says. That is not the case for me because I would have a very low uh, self-worth right now. Uh, it could be your own ego, right? I'm always the smartest person in the room. Uh, I don't need to hear what anybody else has to say because I'm, I'm my own God, basically. The point is we all have our idols. We all have our things that we are allowing to be in a position that God is supposed to occupy in our lives. Now, in Corinth, it was, uh, it was a little more obvious, right? Uh, they... Uh, Literally, we're going and worshiping at pagan altars. And some of the Christians in the church thought that they could go to, they could even go to like a pagan ritual, uh, like an orgy or a sacrifice or whatever, and use it as an opportunity to spread the gospel. Right? I'm going to hang out at this orgy and tell people about Jesus. Is basically the idea. Kind of like uh, if someone said they're going to, you know, go witness at the strip club. I mean, I guess Jesus can save anybody in any situation, but that's not probably the ideal scenario. Right? And so Paul, he, he says, look, you need to, you, you think that you can handle a little bit of idolatry because you're so smart and mature. In reality, you need to be running the other way. In verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. He says, I believe in you. You're, you're no dummy. Right? You're, you're smart. Remember, earlier in this book, uh, Paul pointed out how much logic uh, meant to the people of Corinth. They really kind of worshipped that. Uh, that was their whole thing. Is, you know, they loved to hear wise men and philosophers come in and you know, tell their, uh, give their TED talk, basically. And he says, you're smart people. You know, you, I, I know that you subscribed to all the right podcasts and everything. Um, and so you, you you fancy yourself a deep thinker. Verse 16 says, Is not the cup of blessing a sharing in the blood of Christ? Now your translation, if your Bible may say a communion or fellowship. That's where This is where we get the word for communion. It's from this, this passage. Is, uh, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing or communion in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a sharing or a communion in the body of Christ? So, you know, when they would have uh, communion, like we call it today, they would have one loaf that everyone tore a piece off and, and ate from. They would have one cup that everyone drank from. Uh, and so, you know, when we do that, you and I are, are one. We're on the same page. 
we even have like the same bread in our bellies. We have the same Christ in us. Now he makes a little mention here. This is, he, he, he calls it the cup of blessing. And we talked about this a little bit. Uh, talked about this a little bit on Wednesday. Um, he's, he's referencing the Passover. The, the, the Passover Seder. It was a, a meal that you would take at Passover. Uh, some of us know the, the story of the Last Supper, right? which is Jesus is basically doing a, a version of the Passover with his disciples before he would suffer. And so there were four different cups, four different times that you would drink during this, this uh, meal or ceremony. The first one is the cup of uh, sanctification. It means you know you're, you're celebrating that God brought them out of bondage. It means I will bring you out. The second is the cup of plagues or, or deliverance, uh, which is, you know, I will deliver you, is how it translates. And the third is the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing, which means I will redeem you, right? I'll pay the price for you. And then the Last Supper account tells us that after they drink from that cup, that's the cup when, when Jesus said, you know, now this is my flesh and this is my blood. After they drank from that cup, it says that they sang a hymn. Uh, and then they went out to the, uh, the Mount of Olives. They headed for the Garden of Gethsemane. Which again is what we talked about on Wednesday night. So that means they didn't drink from the fourth cup. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, uh, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until we're together in the kingdom. And so in the garden, we see this scene where Jesus is praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, your will be done. And so it can be tempting to say, oh, okay, that's the cup, right? That fourth cup that he didn't drink. He's saying, I, you know, that it's the, uh, it's the cup of salvation or restoration, but it, it literally translates as, I have brought you home. Because I'm not going to drink that cup until I've brought you home. Right? We'll drink that together one day. See, there was a fifth cup that no one drank from. There was a cup that you would just set on the table. They would call it um, uh, the cup of wrath or Elijah's cup. And the idea was basically that Elijah is going to come back one day and tell us that the Messiah has come and it's time for God's wrath to be poured out against all wickedness. And in the garden, Jesus was saying, I believe that he was saying, God, that cup of wrath that you're going to pour out against all wickedness there's any other way to save these people without me having to deal with all of that. I would prefer that. But not my way. Your will be done. Anyway, that'll not be on your bill this month. Just a little, little bonus. So he says, you know, when we take communion, we're drinking that third cup. The cup of blessing. The cup that he redeemed us. Right? This is what paid for my sin. This is what... Getting me to heaven is his flesh and his blood shed for me. Verse 17 says, Since there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, uh, so we all partake of the one bread. 
So we're one with Christ when we take communion. We're one with another. Um, one with one another. There we go. Um, and so, you know, if Christ is in me and he's in you, uh, then we should be united. That's the point. Verse 18 says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So he's kind of changed the subject a little bit. He says, when the Israelites, when they bring a sacrifice to the temple, they identify with the sacrifice. Right? That was part of the deal. And you lay your hand on this animal, and this animal is going to die for my sin in, in my place. And so you identify yourself with it, and then the meat is offered to the Lord, and some of it is given to the, the Levites to eat, some of it is given to you to eat. Depending on the offering, there was one called the fellowship offering. Which if you wanted to eat beef back in the day, uh, that's what you had to do was a fellowship offering. And all that meat had to be eaten within a day. You better have some friends and family, right? We're going to eat this whole cow today. Uh, I would love to be invited to that party. You know, you know what I mean? Like, all right, it's a challenge. Let's do it, you know. Um, but anyway, so he says, you know, when they do this, when they bring their sacrifices, they share in this experience. Uh, there's no question where their allegiance falls. And so, so if we take communion seriously, if we take it in faith, it should have great significance. Now, some people don't take it serious, and that it has no significance. It's just some crackers and juice to them, and... We're missing out. But the idea is when we do this, it's significant. Everyone knows we're all on the same page. Okay, so verse 19. So, so what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Now remember back in chapter 8, he, he already told them, why are you guys arguing about this? Idols are nothing. Now, our God's so much bigger than that. But verse 20, he says, no. I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers or to be in fellowship or in communion with demons. So when the Jews go to the temple, uh, it's not just about uh, the meat. There's something more to it. When a believer takes communion, uh, it's not just crackers and juice, there's significance, there's weight to it. And we're showing our, our solidarity, solidarity with Christ and with one another. So Paul says, look, you're smart. You know that the idols themselves are nothing. But demons are at work. Anytime worship is ha being given to anyone but God, the demons are behind that. Because that's their whole deal, right? It's just take the worship intended for the Lord and, and point it anywhere but at the Lord. And so when that stuff is happening, just know that it is demonic. It's not just a joke. It's not, no, it's, you know, it's not just no big deal. There's evil with it. Verse 21, it says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Says, you can't have it both ways. Are you one with Christ or one with the world? You can't 
we try to ride this line in between, and it causes all kinds of problems. Verse 22, or do, uh, do we provoke the Lord's jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? The Lord isn't jealous of, of demons, but he's jealous for us, right? He wants us in fellowship with him, and when we go, uh, he wants us, you know, being built up and, and strengthened in him, not being torn down and drained by things that pull us away from him. Then he starts to summarize this whole argument in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify or build up. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So he says, look, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And he gives us a little kind of checklist. He says, is it spiritually profitable? Is it building you up? Is it building other people up? Is it growing people? Is it leading people closer to Jesus? Is it leading you closer to Jesus? Then cool. Would someone, though, witnessing you do this, would it lead them to grow in their faith or to stumble. Because he says, no one, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Right? If you're strong, you're smart, you're mature, this should factor into your decision making. So when you ask, should I or shouldn't I? Um, first, you should probably ask yourself, why am I asking myself this? Right? Why, wh- if, I, if I have to ask, that's a good indication. Uh, because I think a lot of us were looking for this line of just how distant we can get and still be considered following Jesus. Uh, if you can't see Him anymore, and still following Him. If you're, you know, you can, you, kinda, you can see the back of the line still follow? How far from him can I get and still be considered following? And so Paul says, look, it's not just about avoiding what is harmful, but it's also about pursuing what is good. Yes, you can technically do that. Is it good? Is it going to benefit anyone other than yourself? Verse 25, he says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. So he's giving some practical stuff. Uh, your Bible may say the shambles instead of the meat market. All this was was a market where, you know, the animals are sacrificed at this pagan altar, the pagan priest takes some of it, the person sacrificing takes some of it, and there's a bunch left over, and they sell it in the shambles, this meat market, where you could get a really good deal, because this meat's going to get thrown out otherwise. And so lots of people would shop there. Um, and he says, so if, you know, you want to buy anything in the market? Go ahead. Just don't ask questions. You know, is it, does it look fresh and edible? Cool. Uh, verse 26, he says, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. You know, those, those cows belong to the Lord before they were sacrificed to whatever they were sacrificed to. But, verse 27, he says, If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, uh, 
uh, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Don't make it weird and awkward. You, we probably all know that person that anytime you try to feed them anything, they're like, well, does this have soy or dairy or gluten or blood, you know. I know that people have health and dietary restrictions, but sometimes I'm like, there's nothing left to eat after you gave me that list of things. Here is some styrofoam. That's what you can... Verse 28, though, he says, But if anyone says to you, This is meat, sacrifice to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. He says, basically, look, if somebody, they're baiting you, right? They're, if they point, they go out of their way to point out this was sacrificed to an idol, they're waiting to see what you're going to do. Now, I was trying to think of like a practical application of that or version of that today. Um, here's one I, I could think of. Halloween. Now, some people have very strong convictions about Halloween. I don't know about you, but when I get my kids ready for Halloween, it's time to go get candy and be silly and have fun. If we got invited to a Halloween party where they were like, Come celebrate Sam Hain and the Dark Lord Satan. I'd be like, yeah, we're not going to go to that Halloween party. We're gonna <laughs> you know, you're making it weird. You're making it about that. That's not what we're into. Uh, so we'll come to the church trunk or treat. Uh, it's about motivation, right? And so if people, you know, people want to see if your faith lines up with your actions. Verse 29, he says, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's for for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? That's the big question. If I know that I'm free to do this thing, why does your conscience matter? Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So why should I care? Why should someone else's conviction overrule my liberty? So verse 31, he says, whether then you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's not about you, and it's not about that other person's conscience. Are you trying to glorify God in your life or not? What would glorify Him? What would be your act of gratitude that you're saying about? What would please Him? Verse 32, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So should I, shouldn't I, what would Jesus do? Remember those bracelets that were around back in the day? That's a good question, right? Are others going to benefit or does it displease me? Verse 33, he says, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. That's what matters to me. Chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul says, in the end, what matters is, are people being saved? Are my actions causing people to stumble? Now, your salvation, you know, someone else's salvation is not dependent on you, so you can sure make it more difficult for someone to come to the Lord by your own, by your actions. 
And we all probably have known that hateful Christian that someone goes, that guy is a Christian? Don't be that guy. We all have our idols. You know, we, uh, we all buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. We rest the responsibility for for our peace and happiness on other people's shoulders, rather than trusting all of that to the Lord. We all have our things, right? Our stuff that we need to flee from. And the biggest uh, question is, what what in my life is is keeping me from following closer to Jesus, and what is keeping me a little further back? Just bow your heads for me, and we'll, we'll pray. Lord, this morning we just said, uh, we ask that you would help us to see what is actually going on. Help us to see, we know that your word says demons are real, that we, we struggle against powers and principalities. But Lord, we know that you are in our midst. We pray that you would help give us a new focus, a new awareness, to make our hearts right. Help us to imitate you rather than the world. I know these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Hell is hot and forever is a long time. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to help lead more people to you. If you're listening, if you don't have communion or fellowship with God, you're distant from Him. Maybe you've not made Him your King and your Savior. Today's the day of salvation, Bible tells us. The ends of the age have come. It's time to end your time of wandering and, and follow Jesus. You could pray something like this, and it's not just prayer, but it's the faith behind it. You, if you believe, you could pray something like this. I'll lead you in it, and you can just pray it in your heart. Jesus, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross, and you rose again to pay for my sin. I believe and turn from my sin and give you my life. Thank you for saving me. Help me to follow you today and tomorrow and forever. We just pray that you, uh, all things have become new. You are a new creation. And we want to help you follow us. Lord, we also ask this morning to help us to trust you and follow you today, tomorrow, and forever. And above all things, Lord, we ask and pray that you come and come quickly. And all God's people say, Ready?